So we're starting a new series today, What's Coming? Looking at the resurrection. I'm a, I, I listen to sermons routinely. I listen to friends who are pastors and different ones because I need to be fed as well. I need to have a lot of input so I can uh, continue to learn. And I enjoy listening to Timothy Keller a great deal. And some of what I'm going to share today I actually learned from him. And so I want to give him credit. Uh, later on, when we get further through this series, I'll actually post a link to, the, to one of the messages that I'm going to draw from, and you'll hear him talk about some of the things we're going to talk about today. Uh, this isn't a, a re-preaching of his message, but I did learn some things from him that I'll be using today. So I just want to kind of give a, a footnote there so you are aware of that. You know, we are, we are fascinated by the future. We're fascinated by the future, but we're really bad at predicting it. I don't know, I, I loved watching the Back to the Future movies, and recently we uh, showed it to my children. We watched Back to the Future. And if you remember, Back to the Future, of course, when, when they jumped forward in time, they jumped to 2015, which now is like old news. And they had like the flying cars and stuff, and we still, I mean, I'm lucky if I can get mine to roll, you know, forget fly. So, you know, we're still, we're not good at predicting the future. And that even comes into the, the, the Bible side of things, the, the religious side of things, because, I mean, we've been predicting the end of the world for 2,000 years, and it's not, it hasn't ended yet. I, and I've shared before that when I was growing up in the 80s, you know, we had the Cold War and the Soviet Union, and, I mean, we knew Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist, you know, for sure, and uh, it, was, it was over. I knew I was never going to be old enough to have children. And now I am old enough to have grandchildren. I don't have grandchildren because I started late, but, you know, still here, still here. And uh, so we're really bad at this whole predicting the future thing. So we're fascinated by it, but we're bad at it. And we're also really good at worrying about the future. But then here's the other thing, the resurrection. We had to have a very poor understanding, of a, a poor sense, a poor feel of the resurrection. Now, every year we, you know, we do the big Easter thing. He is risen. He is risen indeed. You know, we do that once a year. We're good at that. So we, we know, we, but I'll tell you, here I am. I've been here now. I've been the senior pastor here for 15 years, going to this church for a quarter of a quarter of something, a while. I have never taught at length, nor have I ever heard at length, a discussion about the resurrection. I mean, we talk about it every year at Central, but what does it mean? And what does it mean beyond Easter? And so we're going to spend the next five weeks talking about what are the real life day to day when you're busy at work or school or, you know, spend time with the kids, the grandkids, the grandparents, whatever you do with your life, out with the neighbors, what does the resurrection mean beyond, you know, just, well, obviously Jesus rose from the dead and that's, that's really important. It is. But what does it mean? What does it mean for us in real life today? So that's what we're going to spend the next five weeks on. And so we already read, uh, Joel led us through, and we read a big section. Poor Joel. I said, Joel, you want to read Scripture Sunday? He's like, great, yeah, sure. Usually you read Scripture, you got like 10 verses, maybe, 8 to 10. I was like, it's, 40, it's 50 verses. He's like, <laughs> okay. He's a good sport. So we've been reading this account, and, and almost Many of us, most of us, depending on your background, maybe some of that was new to us, but for a lot of us who say, oh yeah, I've heard that a hundred times, I've heard that, the account of the resurrection. But sometimes we've so, got it so caked up with religion 
And I know, it's weird when I talk about religion. He goes like, aren't you a pastor? Aren't you like religion your thing? But I'm not a big fan of religion, as many of you know. And sometimes we've caked so much religion onto this stuff that it, it, it loses all real life meaning for us. So I want to I dig at this a little bit today, this account, because it's fascinating what's here. So the first thing I want to call attention to in what we read is something we see. We first see it in verses 10 and 11. Because it starts with the women who go to the tomb. Verse 10, now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women. So there was a whole bunch of them with them and they were telling these things to the apostles. Verse 11, but these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. And then when they're on the road talking to the stranger who turns out to be Jesus, and it says there in verse 22, but also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that he had also, that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but they didn't see. But him they didn't see. So the first thing we want to bring up is the fact that there is no good reason to put women in the story. Now, easy, before we rush the stage or turn off the stream, this is a culture where if you were to go to court, you do not call women as witnesses. Why? Because women are unreliable. They are not to be believed. Now, I'm not, I do not believe this, okay? Don't shoot the messenger. But this was the culture. They did not believe women. Women were not to be believed, and so they couldn't even testify in court because this was a culture that didn't value women or think that they really had a much of thought in their head. And we see that because these women, I mean, they tell us who they are, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary. Mary Magdalene was one of the first people who followed Jesus. Mary Magdalene was a follower before all the disciples were. In fact, these women were disciples. They weren't the 12 but these guys traveled with Jesus for three years. He had a pretty big entourage. It's not just the 12, which is why after when they replaced Jesus, when they replaced, a little, little, replaced Judas, they have people to choose from because there were more that traveled with him. The 12 was just the inner circle. So these women have traveled with them for three years. These are their friends. They're close to these women. And these women come back and say, hey, guess what? And they're like, uh-uh, nope, nope. Their own friends don't believe them. Why? Because they're women. Now, here's the point. If you're going to make up a story to try to get people to buy into a new belief, you wouldn't do it this way. You would not start with women eyewitnesses. That's a dumb way to start trying to convince people of something. And so the point is, there's no good reason for women to be in the story unless they were in the story for real. If you were making up a story, you wouldn't say, hey, let's throw in some women witnesses. It'll make it more believable. Eh, no, sorry, thank you for playing. So the only reason they're in there, and they're not even like later supporting, they're the first ones. And the only reason to have them in there is if it's true. Because there's no good reason to lie about that. It's a bad choice if you're making up a story. But there they are. Second point, resurrection. Nope, that's not the third point, so I'm going to take that back out. 
The second point, no one is looking for a resurrection. Now we, if, if you've grown up in the church, you're just so used to the idea that Jesus rises from the dead. So you, like you're waiting for that part of the story. You know, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And you know the resurrection is coming. But the Jewish idea of resurrection, A, first, not all the Jews believed in resurrection at all. The Sadducees, which were in charge of the temple, the Sadducees were like the heirs of the priests. They're the ones who now are in charge of the temple, the Sadducees. They didn't believe in resurrection at all. They rejected the idea of resurrection completely. But the Pharisees, they still believed in resurrection. And so there were Jews that believed in resurrection and Jews that didn't. But the Jews that did believe in resurrection, which were probably a good number, they believed the resurrection was something that happened at the end, at the end of human history. We see this when Jesus shows up when Lazarus dies. Jesus shows up and Mary, Martha confronts Jesus. If you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus says, well, you'll see him again. And Martha says, well, yes, I know I'll see him at the resurrection. She means, well, Jesus, I know someday. Because Martha's picture of the resurrection is that something that happens when all of human history is over. That happens at the end. So she goes, I know then, but I miss him now. And that's when Jesus says, well, I am the resurrection. Watch. And out come Lazarus. So as this starts unfolding, as Jesus resurrects, nobody's expecting that. Jews don't think the resurrection can happen now. This is not the time for the resurrection. So again, if you're going to create a story that you want to try to attract the Jewish people into, you're not going to lead with resurrection because, well, that's stupid. That's not, it's not time for resurrection. Resurrection doesn't happen now. So that's strike two. Well, what do we see because of this? Verse 31 and verse 37. They have a hard time understanding what's happening. In verse 31, when they finally figure out that they've been talking to Jesus for a couple hours, now he's serving them bread, and then they vanish. And they're like, whoa, what's going on here? Verse 37, when he reappears again, I mean, they're talking about, hey, so, you know, hey, we talked to him, and it turned out it was Jesus. They're like, really? Jesus is like, hey, guys. They're like, ah! Freaks them out. What does it say there? They were startled and frightened. Yeah, well, if I suddenly materialized at your table, you'd be startled and frightened. And be going like, we need to find a new church, because that's creepy. They, they're like, what is happening? And the best, because they don't believe in resurrection for now, even when he's there in front of them, the one thing they're pretty certain of is he's not back from the dead in the sense of being resurrected. They don't assume he's resurrected. What do they assume? That he's a ghost. They thought, he was, they, thought they were seeing a ghost, a spirit. So they don't, even when they see him, they don't go, oh, wow, you're, you're resurrected. Because they don't believe in resurrection now. So even with evidence before them, they assume they're seeing a ghost. Because although their theology didn't allow for ghosts, they were superstitious still. He said, well, that's not compatible. Yeah, well, we do the same thing, right? And because of that, Jesus has to prove that he's real. And so you see him doing that. He goes, look, feel me, touch me. Spirit doesn't have flesh and blood. We don't have, we don't have bones I don't have flesh and bones. So they could touch him and it was real. I can feel the bones. 
But they're still freaked out. She's like, do you have anything to eat? You know, we got some fish. All right. And what do they do? He goes, okay, watch. Do ghosts eat? Oh, that's a good point, Jesus. Wow. Well, maybe you are real. I mean, he's having to convince them because they don't believe it even when it's in front of them. They, they're struggling to understand even after they see. And so Jesus has to prove by having them touch him and by eating to try to get them to understand that I'm, I'm, I'm really here physically. I'm not haunting you. I am back in a physical body. So the point here is, if you're going to create a story, if you're going to create a myth to try to create a new religion or a new movement and get followers, this is about the stupidest way to do it. Because your target audience is like, no, no, that's not true. We got women witnesses. And resurrection doesn't happen now. And so even as it's happening, they are not like, oh, wow, this is, wow, we knew it. They're like, no, this isn't right. And then as we keep going, notice that they're still even trying to figure out who Jesus is. Verse 19. This is when they're walking along. So the guy joins them. And I just want to say, when, when this guy joins them, this this account, we read it, and we go, well, that's kind of weird. It seems, seems kind of this, all of a sudden, this stranger appears and starts walking with them. But if you were a first century Jew reading this, this would read normal. Because what's just happened? They just had Passover. So at Passover, a lot of people came to the city. And then after the weekend, what did they do? They went home. And so you've got a lot of people heading home. And the roads were not safe. They were robbers out there. They were, you know, kind of pirates. So you tended to travel in groups, but you may not have come with a group. And so it was very normal for travelers to bunch up. And so for a guy to walk along and say, hey, can I join you? That, was, that happened all the time. That was normal. And so when Jesus walks up and says, hey, can I join you? They're like, yeah, come along, because that's just what happens. Everyone does this. This is normal. And then he says, boy, you guys seem kind of sad. What are you talking about? And the... And the What's the guy's name there? He says, um, uh, where is it? Cleopas. He goes, have you been living under a rock the last few days? How have you not heard what's gone on? It's been the talk. It's been the gossip all over Jerusalem. He's like, oh, no, tell me about it. And notice what he says. He says, well, Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. Verse 21, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. So they, they don't understand who Jesus is still. They're like, well, he was a prophet. And we were hoping he was the Messiah. Verse 21, well, that's what I just read. We were hoping that he was this. Part of the issue is the Jews did not believe that a human could be God. And we forget this. Now, in Greek and Roman, in the Greek and Roman religion, humans becoming gods and gods becoming human, were, that was normal. You know, you had gods that came down and became human and did things with the humans that you shouldn't do and stuff like that. So that was normal for Greek and Roman. And, you know, they even, by this point, they were beginning to elevate the, the emperor to godhood. So a human kind of became deity. But the Jewish 
the Jewish way of thinking, no way ever. Or as I put it here, Yahweh, no way. They would not even say the word Yahweh. The name of God was so sacred to them that they wouldn't say it. And because they didn't want to say it, they, were, they wouldn't even write it because if they wrote it, then somebody might be reading along and forget and read it out loud and then you've said it. So they didn't even write the word Yahweh because the name of God was so holy it could not even be spoken by regular humans. Would Yahweh himself become human? That, don't be ridiculous. God is never human. And so even as Jesus is coming down, I mean, he says things like, me and I am Yahweh, and the Pharisees are like, well, you need to die because that's stupid. That's, that's heresy. But we see the disciples, even though they understand he's Messiah, they still don't understand that he's Yahweh. They miss a lot of what he says. Because now he's gone, they're like, well, he was a prophet, and we were hoping he was Messiah. But their view of who Messiah was, Messiah was going to be a human like Moses, like Elijah. A human that God used, a human that had great power from God, but a human. They did not think of Messiah as God. Messiah was a human that God raised up, like Samson and Moses and Elijah and all those guys. So they still don't understand what's going on. They're not sitting there going, oh, well, hey, you're, the, you're, you're God in the flesh. They didn't even believe that could happen. So they're coming at it real slow here. Two other quick points. Verse 30 and 31. So they walk, he's walking along with these guys. They don't know it's Jesus, which obviously means he appears perfectly human. It's not like, wow, who's our friend and why is he glowing? And we'd love to have you stay the night, but we're afraid you'll keep us up. Can you turn it down a little? We don't need a nightlight. No, I mean, he's just normal. And it says that they go to stop, and he makes like he's going to keep going. We're like, ooh, what is the significance of that? That Jesus is going to keep going. And pastors can then, you know, we can hang whole sermons on, are you going to let Jesus keep going, or will you invite him in? Now, no, 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 no. This was normal. As we said, it was normal for a traveler to join a group. But then it was presumptuous when the group would stop for the night. You didn't say, hey, can I stay with you? That was not cool. So the traveler who would join the group would always make like they were going to keep going. And the law of hospitality said that the group would say, no, please don't go. Stay with us. So again, we read that and go, oh, what's the spiritual significance of that? It's like, well, no, they're just good Jews that do what Jews do, did then, which was obey the law of hospitality, which means that the person who joined you will, will act like he's going to keep going, and you will beg him to stay. They're just doing what... So the, the, the early church, early Jews would read that and go, yeah, that's normal. You're describing what really happens. But then it gets weird. So they go in to spend the night. Well, the host, which is not the guy who joined, whoever's the host, whoever's the head of the group, would then take on for the evening the job of head of the household. And Jesus does that. He, which means he passes out the food at the meal. He takes the bread and breaks it and begins to distribute it. And that's not, that, he, he's, out of, he's out of line. But for three years, as he had traveled with them and lived with them, he was always the head of the household. He was the rabbi. And so as he takes the head of household job, they go, oh, whoa, 
and they recognize him. And then he goes, poof. And that's weird. The last thing is in verse 48. One of the last things he says, you will be witnesses. And we, if you were here a few weeks ago, we talked about this word witness. It's the word martus, where we get the word martyr, somebody who dies. He says, you'll be my witnesses. All right. So there's our unpacking. What does it mean? What does this mean for us today? Let's apply this. First, the account of the resurrection is not built for easy acceptance. We have this idea that, oh, this is, you know, we, we read this as if we're supposed to believe it. And so some people even say, well, you know, you just can't believe everything you read. You know, this stuff was just written. No, this account was not written to be easy to believe. If you were going to create an account so that you could get people to believe what you wanted to teach them, you would not write this. You wouldn't start with women. My goodness, no. Why would you, ha why would you start having your first witnesses be women? You're going to turn off most of your audience right there. And then you wouldn't talk about resurrection out of order. Everybody knows that's not how it works. So if you are trying to get people to follow your new religion, you would not write this. It's kind of like his birth. You ever think about that? When Jesus is born, who's the first witnesses to the birth of the Messiah? Shepherds. They're like one step above women. Nobody likes shepherds. Shepherds are awful. Why? You would never take a shepherd's word for it. They usually didn't testify in court either. Feel better, ladies? You don't. I'm going to need an escort to the car after church. I realize this. <laughs> shepherds were bad witnesses too. But when Messiah is born, here comes God into earth. And who's testifying it? Shepherds. People aren't going to buy that. If you want to try to create a story and get a bunch of people to follow it, you usually want to take them where they always want to go. You want them to go, you know, I always thought so. Yeah, I knew it. We tend to go towards that which we want to believe. What we find credible, even if it's not real, we're attracted to that which, well, that makes sense. And here's an account that violates everything a Jew believes. You wouldn't start with women witnesses. You wouldn't have an early resurrection, and you wouldn't have God being a human. None of that makes sense. And so if you were going to make it up, this is not what you'd make up. And this is important, because many of us, growing up in a post-Christian world, we've grown up with this, and we've been presented this as true, and so then we come at it, we go, well, you know, if you were skeptical, I find it hard to believe. This was written to be hard to believe. And we know it because Jesus' own followers didn't believe it. They weren't sitting going, oh, we knew he'd come back. He comes back and they're like, we don't think you're back. And you can almost hear his frustration. Do you have, do you have something to eat? Here, give me that. Look. See? Because they're like, oh, maybe. And that's why they walk in, you know, the, the women come back and they, he rose from the dead. They're like, yeah, right, women. So what happened? 
If it was so hard to believe, why'd they believe? Because they became convinced that even though they hadn't planned on believing it, it was true. And this account, and so later, as they, they would go out and begin to witness, and they began to preach, one of the things that you hear them say again and again, you read it right in the accounts, they say, we are not following some cleverly devised tales. Why? Because if you're going to devise a good tale, a good story, this is not what you'd devise. The account is hard to believe on purpose. And that leads us to our second big point. God does not meet our expectations about himself, and that makes us uncomfortable. Religion. Well, well, I forget who the, whether it was Karl Marx or who said it, but some great speaker at one point said, religion is the opiate of the masses, designed to make people feel better. I think it was Nietzsche who said, man, God made man in his image and then man returned the favor, making God in his image. And that's what religion does, right? It, we want it to make us feel better. So we design gods that fit our picture, that we can feel comfortable with. And that's human. But the God of the Bible doesn't fit. He makes us uncomfortable because he won't meet those expectations. Here, here are his followers. These guys followed him for three years. And everything he does, they're like, why'd, why'd that happen? Yay, we found the Messiah. He's dead. Oh. Okay, well, I guess we were wrong. Oh, he's back alive. No, 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 no. They have trouble every step of the way because he, he's not who they would create. He doesn't meet their expectations, and it makes them very uncomfortable, and they have a hard time. And we do. So years ago, I was, I was asked to speak up at Old South at their youth group. And they said, do you believe in hell? I said, yeah. And they were offended. They were very offended. They, were all, they, they got a little hostile towards me. You believe in hell? Man, why do you believe that? That's terrible. And I said, well, I don't want to believe in hell. And what? Like they figured, well, I've, I'm a huge proponent of hell. You know, I'm one of those preachers who just can't wait to preach a good hellfire and brimstone. I love to celebrate hell and you're going to go to hell. And no, I'm like, no, I hate, the, I hate it. I don't want to believe in it. And they're like, what? They didn't know what to do. The hostility vanished into confusion. They said, well, if you don't want to believe in hell, then why do you? I said, because my entire human experience thus far has taught me that wanting to believe something doesn't make it true. I said, there are so many things in my life that I wish weren't true, but they are, regardless of whether I believe them or not. I said, so I am not looking to believe what I want. I'm looking to believe what is true. And they didn't know what to do with that because their whole understanding of religion was, you pick what makes you feel better. If you have a God that fits your expectations and matches, never makes you uncomfortable, you never look at him and go, really, God, why? then it's entirely possible that the God you're following is a God you created. It's an idol of your own making. Sarah and I celebrated 22 years yesterday. Was it yesterday? Yeah, it was yesterday. Days pass fast. I'll say that was yesterday, and Sarah will be like, that was three weeks ago. It's like, well, something like that. 
Yesterday we celebrated 22 years. In 22 years, we've gotten to know each other really, really well. We know each other really, really well. We have a great relationship, and we drive each other crazy almost daily because there's still stuff you don't see coming. And we still surprise each other. Why? Because she's her own person. Who knew? Because why? She's a person. I didn't create her. So she doesn't always fit my mold. And if God is a real person, not a human, but a real person, then he's not going to fit your mold all the time either. And God routinely makes me uncomfortable, and he surprises me. Because he's his own thing. And he's told us, he says, listen, your ways, my ways, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so much higher are my thoughts than your thoughts and my ways from your ways. You're not going to get me. I will not always be understandable. And that's big because oftentimes we say, well, if I don't understand it, I can't believe it. And that's garbage. I have this cell phone. And this cell phone has more computing power than my first three lap, my first three desktops. Now I know that's true, and I know microcircuits and all this stuff, but I couldn't build this. And I have only the vaguest idea of how it works. I know it does work, but how it works and how it understands. Now, I've been watching engineering videos. I loved I watched one on the microwave. You know what I learned? It uses microwaves. Who knew? That was weird. I understand it to a point, but there's still a lot I don't understand. You say, could you build a microwave at home? I doubt it. I'd probably get NASA coming going. We're getting weird signals from your house. Yeah. But I don't, I don't not use it. Why? Because I don't need to understand it to believe. I can understand enough. Well, what do you see with these guys? Did they fully understand everything? No. In fact, they didn't understand a lot but they believed. Why? Because they knew it was true, even if they didn't understand all the why it's true. We have a lot of people today who say, well, if I can't explain this and I can't explain this, then I can't believe it. And it's like, then you're looking for a reason not to believe. Because these guys didn't understand it, but they came to know it was true. And we can still learn, and I'm not talking about embracing an anti-intellectualism. I'm not talking about that God doesn't mean for us to use our brains. It's just to understand that he is bigger than your ability to understand everything. And you don't have to if you know it's true. And this account was not built on easy believism. It only makes sense if it was true. Next thing, Jesus had a physical body, but it was different. It wasn't the same at all. What was similar? Well, he walked along with them, and like we said, they didn't even recognize him as being anything different. They just, he was just another traveler. Didn't seem weird. He could walk. He ate. They could touch him and feel flesh and bones. But then he also had wounds that weren't bleeding, and that whole thing where he would just appear and disappear. So he had a physical body that was real and could be touched and was convincing to the point of that first I just thought he's another guy and yet wasn't the same at all. And his followers didn't understand everything but they believed. 
And we'll see this happen later. And again and again, they just say, listen, we saw it. We can't explain it, but we saw it. It's real. So what are our practical discussions for today? Are you trying to fit God into your own box of comfort? A lot of times we try to make God fit our picture. We want to be comfortable with it. There are parts of God that we say, but God, this makes me uncomfortable. I don't like this. And oftentimes that's enough to say, I'm out. And if it is, then yeah, be out. But often it's because we are trying to make God in our image and the ways that he doesn't match what we want, we discard. But if God is real, if he's a real person, a personal God, which is how he reveals himself in the Bible as a person, not a human, Jesus became human, but God in his entirety is not human, but he is a person. And if you can't take him as who he is, which is very much more than what you would invent, then maybe you're trying to just create a crutch. People say, well, religion's a crutch. Religion is. The truth presented in the Bible is not a crutch. It's hard. It's not what somebody would write if they just wanted to attract believers. Because the God of the Bible is hard. But he's real. And he won't always meet your expectations, but are you trying to make him that way? When he doesn't do what you expected, when he doesn't meet your expectations, are you ready to say, hey, if you can't be what I want you to be, then I'm gone. Well, if you want to create your own religion, then good luck. But if you want to believe the truth, then sometimes that's going to make you uncomfortable. Are you trying to fit God into your box of comfort? Now, we're going to talk more about this over the next few weeks. This is just warm-up today. And so this brings us to our second point that we're going to spend some of this series digging through. Do you have a mythical picture of the future? Again, when we religiousize it, things get weird quick. So when I start talking about heaven, most of us immediately start picturing clouds. You know, if you ever see a representation of heaven, somebody posts a picture, this is how you take a picture to represent heaven. You frame up the picture and then you go, oh, look, the sun is coming through the clouds. It's like heaven. Really? Then we start picturing wings. You know? Jesus didn't have wings. He wasn't wearing white. He didn't float in. Good morning. He didn't bring FTD. I realize, sorry, too dated. You guys are too young for FTD. Flowers, okay? Go with it. We have this picture of, hey, when I get to heaven, I'll meet you on uh, cloud number three, and we'll uh, play our harps together. Maybe we'll rock out with the harps. Yeah, that's not... Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at what is the picture that the Bible gives for the future and what we're going to experience. We get a little taste of it today. Jesus sat there and he had, he goes, I have, I have flesh and bones. Huh? That's not usually what we picture, right? We don't picture having a body that's like this body. But Jesus had flesh and bones and he goes, and I can eat. 
I'll tell you, when I think about the future, the fact that Jesus could eat, big fan. Big, big fan. I'm, you know, we, we, what do we pray now? We pray, Lord, bless this food to our bodies, which is just a cute way of saying, please don't make me pay for what I'm just about to eat that I shouldn't. You, know? you don't have to pray for a carrot stick. It's already good for you. It's the Cheeto, right? So it's the hot wings. Lord, bless this to my body because that's the only way I'm coming out of this one. We have this mythical picture of the future that's not based in the Bible. What does it say? God creates a new heaven and a new earth. So we're going to talk about that a little more in the, few, in the following weeks. We're going to look at what, the, what does the Bible teach about what does the resurrection really look like? Because most of us have a mythical picture of it that we've gotten from religion that is not from the Bible. It's from these religious ideas that we've got caked up. So what I want to invite you today as we wrap up and we're done, I want to invite you to trust Christ even if you haven't figured everything out. You say, I don't understand everything. Me neither. But I am heartened by the fact that everything I read here has the ring of truth because it's not designed to make it easy for me to believe. It's not designed to appeal to what I want to hear. And right there, there's a ring of authenticity. It was embraced by men who didn't want to embrace it. It was embraced by men and women who were not predisposed to believe it and in fact didn't immediately. And they not only came to embrace it, they were willing to die to testify to its, to its authenticity. And it was something that they had not planned on believing, nor found it easy to believe. The Apostle Paul, he was so offended by the idea of Jesus being Messiah that he was killing people or throwing them in prison for saying Jesus was the Messiah. Why? Because it offended him. Because everything he understood about who the Messiah would be was Jesus didn't fit it. And one day he's hauling people out of their homes and throwing them in a jail because they say Jesus is Messiah. And a week later he's going, oh, by the way, Jesus is Messiah. What changed, Paul? And then he got beat up for it, stoned almost to death for it, left for dead a couple times. Paul, why do you believe that which you found offensive? He goes, because I found out it was true. It wasn't what I wanted to believe, but I was confronted with something that violated my ideas. And I can't refute it because it was real. That's who we have. Not religion, but a God who breaks into our reality in a way that isn't the way we want and says, I love you and I came to bring you to myself. Not religion, but being restored by the God who loves you. By the Jesus who says, I have come to give you life, not to make you earn it. So if you say, well, I don't understand everything, you fit right in with the rest of his followers. But I invite you to trust him, even if you haven't got him all figured out. Over these next few weeks, we'll dig some more. So next week, we're going to look at the meaning of life. We're going to look at what does the resurrection say about what my life means now? How do I decide how to live each day? How do I decide how to invest my time and my resources when I'm barely making it do? You know, most of us are just trying to survive right now, right? It's hard. 
Why? And what do we do? It's been a rugged year. The Bible answers these questions in ways that may make you uncomfortable, but are, are glorious, but not easy. So next week, we're going to talk about that. So I hope you'll come back. Right now, let's pray. Father, I thank you that you tell us the truth. And that truth sometimes is a little hard to hear because we don't want to hear that we're not okay. And we don't want to hear that our ideas sometimes are wrong. We definitely don't want to hear about being weak. We don't want to hear about losing. We don't want to hear about laying down our lives, especially in the face of unfairness. Definitely not interested in that. We're much interested in winning. We want to protect our rights. We want to stand up for ourselves and have victory and show the world that they're wrong and we're right. We want to dominate. And you come and accept cursing and dying. And you call us to follow you and pick up our cross. And none of this is what we want to hear. And yet you love us. And that does sound good. But you tell us that we can't earn our way into your affections. You tell us that we cannot get you to love us. And we cannot make you proud by being good people. Instead, you tell us that you've been good on our behalf and that we just need to trust you. And that's hard. That's not what we want to hear either. But Lord, it is good to know that you are good. And Lord, you are trying to wean us off this world that is so broken and so addicted to itself. You are trying to pull us out of this world with its competitions, its divisions, its destruction towards one another, and to pull us into your kingdom, which is a heavenly kingdom, which is different, and we don't understand it. But Lord, we can trust you. Thank you for these ancient words that we have read, that these men wrote down, knowing that we'd probably have a hard time believing them. But they told us that they had written these things so that we would understand and believe what they'd seen. That they had written down what they had experienced so that we would know what changed their minds. That you are the Messiah. So Lord, I just pray that we will trust you even when and especially when you don't make sense because you are greater than we are, but you love us. Thank you, Father, for that, that truth. Thank you for the comfort of knowing that we can know you. And we look forward to the day when we graduate out of this temporary moment and come to know you more fully, and then we begin to understand. But until then, Father, we trust you. Be with us this week as we walk out into the angry, divided world. May we be unique among them in our passion for loving them, for loving our enemies, for not needing to fight the way they fight, but to point them towards the kingdom to come. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope I see you next week. Joel will dismiss you from the back. And don't forget, we got that food. Have a good day.